My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Deepan Budlakoti and Syed Hassan. One of the features of the dominant culture in North America today is that it convinces us to see ourselves and each other purely in individual terms. Where a previous generation might have turned to collective solutions, the welfare state, for example, or other more radical collective visions, we have less and less space to see through the lie that my needs are mine, your needs are yours, and the only way to meet them is on our own. At the level of political organizing as well, it's not always clear what relationship there is or should be between supporting an individual and facing an injustice or a need for resources in their own life, and collective efforts to change the institutions and social relations that create those injustices and needs in the first place. Some organizations only meet needs and avoid questions of collective change. Others try to work for change, but without really engaging with the ways that injustice, need, and struggle exist in individual lives. But those aren't the only approaches. Another way to approach this supposed tension is to think of organizing as work to connect my needs and my moments of individual resistance to yours, and to this person over here, and to that person over there, to create something larger and more powerful than any of us on our own, but that still remains grounded in the realities of our lives. Today's show is about exploring ways of navigating that relationship between individual and collective struggles in a specific area. Deepan Budlakoti of Ottawa is an individual who was born in Canada, who has always lived in Canada, but whom the Canadian state arbitrarily decided to start treating as a non-citizen. Despite living where he has always lived, he is currently stateless, which places all kinds of barriers in the way of living a normal life, and he's actively fighting to get Canada to re-recognize his citizenship. He talks about his struggle, particularly developments since his first appearance on the show about six months ago, including his current Indiegogo fundraising campaign to raise money for a legal challenge under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Syed Hassan is an organizer with the migrant justice group No One Is Illegal Toronto, and he talks in more general terms about how his group integrates the struggles of individual migrants into efforts to change the overall system. I spoke with Budlakoti and Hassan by Skype to phone from Ottawa and Toronto, respectively. I started by getting Budlakoti to talk briefly about the injustice that he's facing. His parents had been employees of the Indian High Commission in Canada. If that had been true at the time of his birth, he would have been in one of the very few circumstances in which someone born here does not automatically get Canadian citizenship. Except, it wasn't true when he was born. There's no correlation with High Commission at the time I was born. I was born to parents that had a work permit in Canada, I left the country and came back to Canada with a valid work permit, and I was born in Canada. And there's the doctor, as well as the former commissioner, both confirming that. And yet the Canadian government still insists that I'm not a citizen. From his birth until his early 20s, the Canadian state recognized Budlakoti's citizenship, issuing him documents and allowing him access to services just like any other citizen. I got into a situation with the police, and I got charged. And then once I was... At Ottawa College Center, 
I got an altercation where a guard specifically targeted me and specifically asked me if I was a citizen, which is under their own policy. They don't question or they don't ask individuals. There's no screening process to see if you're a citizen or not. This guard went out of his way, asked me if I was a citizen. I told him, of course I'm a citizen. Once I got out of the hole, which is segregation, CBSA, Canada Border Service Agency, came and seen me saying that I'm not a citizen. I provided a copy of my birth certificate and I provided a copy of my Canadian passport, knowing that everything should be done at this point. But they came back saying that everything was given to me in air and I was no longer classified as a citizen. I was classified as a long-term permanent resident. Keep in mind that due for a process under the charter was never given to me at that time. The whole process of deportation started and now I'm at a point where I have no status in either country. India has already confirmed that I'm not an Indian national, rightfully so. They have a confirmation from the former High Commissioner confirming this, as well as a Canadian doctor where my parents worked at the time of my birth. Budlakoti has never lived in India and doesn't know anybody there. And the Indian government has repeatedly confirmed that he is not an Indian national and will not be issued Indian citizenship documents or accepted there if deported. Yet the Canadian state continues to take the position that he must be deported to India. As it stands now, Budlakoti remains in Ottawa, where he grew up, but is legally stateless, not a citizen of Canada, and not a citizen of anywhere else either. I asked him about how that impacts his ability to live. Okay, for example, once I, was, once I got released, I had no driver license, I had no documents other than my birth certificate and my federal ID card. Now, I had to get back my license with a three-month process to go back to court to get my uh, driver license. I had to apply for work permit even though I'm born in Canada and have lived in Canada my whole life. They did not want to give me a work permit, so I had to file a mandamus application in federal court to get a work permit, which took seven months. Usually you get a work permit within four to six weeks. That's a work permit. It costs $150 plus time for lawyers. Then another process, now I have a work permit, but then I need to get a social insurance card. Even though I already had a social insurance card, Service Ontario did not want to give me a social insurance card. Thomas McClure office got involved. They helped me get my social insurance card. But now, mind you, the social insurance card, driver license, and work permit are only contingent for one year. So now I've got to reapply to get a new one every year until this process is done. Healthcare service is no healthcare service. So if I need to get healthcare, I've got to pay out of my own pocket. There are very few locations that would take individuals that have no status, and there's only limitations of what they can do for you. So if I need a surgery or anything, money will come out of my own pocket. I asked Budlakoti about the struggle against the injustice that he faces and how it came about. And note that in his answer it becomes clear pretty quickly that not only is the profile that his case has achieved been because of collective effort to push it forward, but that it is being pushed forward not as the situation of an individual who's been hit by a quirky bureaucratic error, but very clearly as an expression in one life of broad systemic injustices that require broad systemic change to truly address. I connected with Solidarity Across Borders in Montreal, and with the help of a couple of members of Solidarity Across Borders, they got in touch with other activists in Ottawa, and then we had a local meeting. And then from that meeting there, a group formed, and then from that point on, we started having regular meetings and built from that point on. We have support from CLC, Canadian Labour Congress, BCCLA, CCLA. And those are the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association and the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Different, different unions have different letters, open letters that are on my website going towards the immigration minister, their side campaign on postcards, raising funds for uh, legal expenses through Indiegogo and donations, getting the word out. We're doing different tactics and different steps 
as the process goes along. We're, we're doing national banner drops across the country. We did the speaking tour across the country. I went to, I believe, 10, 10 different cities, spoke, had different events in each city, talked about my case, and some places I spoke with Harsha Wallowley, and other places I spoke with end immigration detention members, and other places I spoke with Indigenous Solidarity Networks in different cities, depending on which city. Talked about the case, build awareness, and get support, essentially, and, and to build on petitions and to build on just generalization of awareness. We're doing different local events and different events all over the country. A new event that's coming up right now is there's a, in Vancouver, BCCLA is hosting an event with the NOE Vancouver on May 14th. That's a new event that's happening. We're working on getting more endorsements. At the same time, we're always trying to build networks and trying to build solidarity through different groups throughout Canada, essentially, and work together to fight back because the injustice is happening to my case in particular, and then also directly with other individuals that are facing deportation itself is an issue in Canada. And as myself and as my own committee, we don't believe in the fact that anyone should be deported from Canada in general, period. We all are settlers here in the first place. What other ways are you hoping that people will show support and will exert pressure to try and get the Canadian state to change its approach? For my particular campaign, we're trying to get letters from individuals to the local MPs or MPPs, depending on what part of the country they're in, to write, have a concern to their MP. Sign the online petition. I'm looking for donations to my Indiegogo or to my website to help with my legal defense. And then on a bigger topic, also, in general, we're trying to work with other groups to try to see if we can change at a bigger level. I think Hassan will jump in. As Budlakoti suggested, I turned to Hassan to continue the conversation. And before we got to questions of how individual and collective struggles can and should relate, I asked him to talk about what exactly migrant justice means and about what No One Is Illegal Toronto is and what they do. Migrant justice is about connecting struggles of undocumented people and migrant workers here in Canada. And that means a fight against the detentions and deportations and denial of basic services and citizenship with the fight for Indigenous sovereignty and solidarity with communities of resistance here, as well as organizing against displacement around the world. And that means fighting against capitalism, war and occupation, and social oppressions that push people out of their homes. So it's sort of a global analysis of how migration comes to be. People are forced out of their homes and people choose to leave because of a number of different reasons. So resisting the factors that force people out, resisting uh, the displacement of people from these lands here. So that means, you know, migrants do not just suddenly become settlers. And so we speak about it as a tripartite. We talk about freedom to move, freedom to return, and freedom to stay. And freedom to stay not just for migrants, but also other communities that have been taking care of these territories. So known as the Legal Toronto has been around for about a decade, a little over that. And we organize against detentions and deportations for access to basic services and in solidarity with indigenous communities. Currently, our work is centered around a campaign against immigration detention. So we're supporting nearly 200 immigrants who are on strike in the maximum security prison in Lindsay, Ontario since September. And this strike has included hunger strikes. It has included blocking their detention reviews and so on and so forth. So that's one part of our campaign. It's a campaign against immigration detention. 
And just a quick interruption, listeners who are interested in hearing about the early phase of the migrant strike in Lindsay can search for an episode of Talking Radical Radio from October called End Immigration Detention on rabble.ca or talkingradical.ca. We're also working in coalition with a number of organizations in Toronto to implement Toronto's sanctuary city policy. This is based on a 10-year campaign where we fought for access to basic services initially in schools, in shelters, in food banks, which has resulted in creating enough mass momentum on the ground that it has driven up at the municipal level. And the policy was passed last February. Now we're working to implement it. At the same time, we're working to ensure policies in other areas that were passed are actually fully enforced. So that means, you know, ensuring that the Toronto District School Board continues to provide services to undocumented people. Shelters continue to be open and accessible to undocumented people, particularly women. And the second aspect of the access to services work is working at the provincial level and trying to get provincial laws changed, um, which deny access to housing, social assistance and healthcare to undocumented migrant people. So that's the access to services portion. And then finally, I'll work in support of Indigenous communities. So right now, we do a lot of when called upon work. So right now, we're supporting folks in Grassy Narrows in their fight against logging. We're working with other communities around the pipeline route, uh, particularly supporting groups of land defenders in Amjinong, Unisperton, etc. So just trying to support and respond to calls as they emerge. I understand that one part of No One is Illegal's work, and I think it plays out differently in different cities, is this integration of casework, of organizing around specific individuals' experiences with broader systemic organizing. Are there any, in your time of involvement, any individual cases that have been, you think, particularly important in the work that No One is Illegal Toronto has done? We don't work on anything unless there are directly affected folks who are at the front line. So the work in the schools began with two children, Kimberly and Gerald Lazano, being arrested at the school. The work in shelters began when undocumented women we knew were being deported and unable to find shelter. The strike that began in Lindsay, which a large part of it is casework because we're providing legal assistance, healthcare assistance, getting people uh, lined up with detention review processes is all casework. And it's a part of us as ourselves, migrants, as people who've lived with precarious status and no status, or mixed status and allies working together to support people. So, yeah, I mean, basically, we do not take on campaigns unless and until there are documented and migrant folks who are actually at the front lines who actually have made a case over and over again for it. So all of our work is about that. I've been doing this for the last seven years. There's been an enormous number of people who I've been honored to know about and work with. So as I mentioned, Kimberly and Gerald Lizana Sosa, who initiated the Education on Deportation campaign, Isabel Garcia, who initiated the campaign with Culture Sanctuary Status, the 191 migrants who went on strike in Lindsay, but particularly within, you know, Amin Majasiri, who was on strike for 63 days, Martin Cisse, um, Linval Daly. There's a lot of names and a lot of voices that inspire us and that are embedded into the way we approach our work. Expand a little bit on maybe one or two of those instances, like maybe the situation with students that uh, ended up inspiring the Sanctuary City campaign. Can you tell me a little bit about that initial case and how that led to the Sanctuary City campaign? I'll have to go back a little bit further. 
In early 2004, members of Known as Illegal Toronto were actually doing an art therapy workshop in the Toronto Immigration Holding Centre, that's the detention centre here. And they asked people who were detained, asked them what was the primary concern with being undocumented in the city of Toronto. And people said that the primary concern was trying to get access to basic services. So fear, particularly when trying to get basic services. Um, at which point we launched the Access Without Failure campaign. And then two years later, what happened was that Canada Border Services Agency went into a school here in Toronto, Dante Alighieri High School, and arrested two children, Kimberly and Gerald Lozano Sosa. And uh, we found out we were able to organize a big demonstration outside the detention center. And when they were released, when the media asked them to talk about what their experiences had been inside the detention center, their response was, for them, the question wasn't just why they were in detention, but also why was any of the people inside in detention. And they worked with us and organized with us for the next two years. Unfortunately, they were deported, but you know they continue to be organizers back in their home country. So that work and that organizing, that relationship is ongoing. Similarly, as I mentioned, Amin Majassiri is the man who's been in immigration haunt for over 36 months and went on hunger strike for 63 days, the last 20 of which he was locked up in solitary confinement. And his family, his friends, his supporters, even his lawyer were denied access to him to force him to get off the hunger strike. We've been working with the family and providing legal support. You know, we are filing human rights cases and we're doing public actions, working directly with people. So, I mean, I think the language of casework, even, you know, like outsiders and insiders, it gets really blurred. We're talking about, you know, walking together in solidarity with people and, you know, campaigns and political strategies emerging in conversation because a lot of the work is about ensuring that people's immediate material needs are met, right? And so whether that is access to services or whether that is stopping detention or deportation and building from there, building from there a real mass movement of migrants, of displaced people, of third world people, of oppressed communities together, to then resist the forces of capitalism and colonialism, displacement, you know, oppression of all forms. How is that approach, that approach of walking together and of building relationships and movements together, how is that different than the kind of service-oriented support that a funded agency might provide? How is it practically different and how is it politically different? First of all, we work quite closely with service providers and agencies. They get the funding to do the work, so we let them do the work. It's their salary and their job. So we don't do service provision, essentially. It's just a different element of the kind of work that's needed to support people. You know, when it starts taking up political power, right, like service provider organizations also become lobbyists and advocates and speaking on behalf of people that they serve, quote unquote, then that is problematic. But if people are just serving people and creating avenues for the people that they are providing services to, to also speak out, I think that's acceptable. So it varies. I don't think there's necessarily one service provider model. So obviously there is stuff around advocacy. So we're not advocates. We're not advocating on behalf of then there's community organizing where you go into a community and just sort of ask people what they want. But we also come in with an analysis that's important. So it's a conversation. It's a conversation between people who had similar kinds of experiences with people with different kinds of lives and analysis. And something joint comes forward in it. And so it's a constantly about checking our power. So politically, that's how it's different. In terms of structurally, we don't have an office. We don't have even a full line. We are completely grassroots, all-volunteer organization. And so, for example, we do a lot of like connecting people. So we're connecting people to doctors who might then serve them or connecting people to shelters who might then serve them or ESL teachers. So if people need that kind of help, 
we might do some of the service providers on referrals. But when we're working with people, you know, it gets far more beyond that. Like we're talking about our friends, we're talking about all of what that entails. One of the things that I've heard about from people who do similar kinds of organizing and read about from people who've written about it is that at least in some moments, at least some people experience there being a tension between involvement in say, a particular individual's struggle to access resources that they've been denied or whatever, and the momentum of the broader campaign. Is that a tension that No One Is Illegal Toronto ever encounters in the course of doing this work? We have actually a whole set of strategies and policies that determine what casework we take on. So there's three of them. The first is that somebody is self-organized. The second is that somebody is a member of the organization. And the third is that it actually plugs in or there can be an actual campaign out of it. So if people contact us and it doesn't fit into this, as in like there isn't a campaign that's possible, there isn't a campaign that's ongoing, there isn't a clear connection, then we unfortunately aren't able to work on it. Now, we talked about how different groupings work. Sometimes people become really service providery. Once they start providing services, when you have an office and people are coming in all the time, it becomes more and more necessary to be present. And oftentimes, you can't take all kinds of political positions. So there is a tension that because we don't have an office, because we're talking about undocumented migrant workers, which are very, very surveilled, silent, hidden, threatened community, the rules by which we work are very different. It's not the same as working with other communities of people, particularly because it's not that we can get people access to assistance. It's not that we can get people access to a lot of rights because people just simply don't have them. So we have not had those challenges particularly, but I do know that a lot of people end up having those challenges. And so the tension remains as a collective community and how to engage with those things. I think what it comes down to is actually talking about if people call us and are just asking for help, we really, we, we just do not have the capacity to be helping, but we can just refer them to people who might. So we don't necessarily take on all the cases that are given to us. And in terms of the way that you've described this as it's both supporting individuals and it's simultaneously movement building and relationship building for struggle. Um, and building material gains that would impact a lot of people. So the point is always it's not just if we're doing a public campaign, but it's about housing. Like We want to make sure that at the end of it, it isn't that one person has housing, but that nobody else will have to have that fight again, right? So whether it's, you know, when we're trying to get access to schools and we're actually trying to change policy and structures so that other people won't have to deal with it again, right? And then in that process, we want to lay the groundwork and do the education within service providers and allies that if we are able to change the policy next time someone is then being denied from schools, there's actually now an agency that's willing to work with them and do all of that work. So that's kind of key to the strategy. And do you see any limitations or any barriers to that approach to, to thinking about movement building? I mean, I think we have to define what a movement is. Because, I mean, I think our movement entails the general activists, progressives, socially conscious people, environmentally conscious people, etc. And as well, there's this global movement of people who are similarly aligned in the fight against displacement, colonialism, capitalism. But when we're talking specifically about migrant and undocumented people, people have needs. Right. And people are being pushed out. You know, Deepin talks about like and he has a lot of support 
right? But even in that case, not having access to decent employment opportunities, the ability to young and the driver's license cannot be renewed, et cetera, et cetera, the lack of healthcare. So our communities need immediate material changes in their lives now. And we need to be able to get that into our communities hands so that people are surviving, but also in that process that those material changes happen, we can start talking about the necessity, the absolute necessity of making changes that aren't just about winning the rights for one person. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know of any other way where we can actually ensure that undocumented people will be part of the struggle. But of course, you know, we have to talk about language, we have to talk about accessibility, we have to talk about differentials in power, we have to talk about discriminations in between people of color and how all of that is embedded, and we have to talk about, you know, homophobia in our communities and all of these things. So we are grappling with all of those things in order to build a movement, but I don't think it makes or breaks on casework. As the interview wound down, I turned back to Budlakoti and asked him to expand on the ways that he saw his individual experience of and struggle against injustice as relating to the broader set of issues and struggles facing migrants in Canada. If we say in broader context, well, deportation itself, right? And then healthcare services and then not having status. What defines status, essentially? Because we are all settlers in Canada, other than the First Nations. But yet, the same settlers at one point now are saying, that individuals have a category. So there's like a four-scale category. Refugee status, permanent residency, Canadian citizenship, and then no status. Having no status is a limitation of self-owned rights. None of these things should apply, in my mind, and it, everyone should have the same status and be treated equally instead of being categorized in different levels and then being treated in different ways. And finally, I asked Budlakoti to talk about one of the current priorities of his own struggle, an Indiegogo fundraising campaign that runs until May 9th. The Indiegogo campaign is, is trying to raise money specifically for my charter application in federal court. Within the next three months, they'll be setting a federal court date in, in Ottawa for the case to begin. The charter application I'm having in federal court is, is violation of subsection 6 and subsection 7 with particular parts of international law as well, hoping that the federal government can see this, all these violations and declare that I am citizen. So we're seeking declaration of citizenship based on the fact that there's so many different violations and the Canada's, Canada's position is very weak based on the fact that we have proven every single thing that they have shown and their evidence is not, in our eyes, solid as the evidence that we have provided and submitted. And we're just trying to raise funds to pay all the legal expenses. So there's an Indiegogo where you go, you can donate, and you can also get perks at the same time. And there's a little description on the Indiegogo and a 10-minute video talking about uh, my case and then how it is from childhood to now, briefly, as well as multiple perks. You can, like, hats, T-shirts, and things like that, so people can wear them and spread the word, especially that way at the same time. At the same time, you can just donate it directly. You have been listening to my interview with Deepan Budlakoti, an individual born and raised in Canada who's been fighting to regain the citizenship that was arbitrarily and unjustly taken from him by the Canadian state, and Syed Hassan, a migrant justice organizer with No One Is Illegal Toronto. We have been talking about the relationships between individual and collective struggles. To learn more about Budlakoti's case, go to justicefordeepan.org, and to donate to his legal challenge, search for Justice for Deepan on Indiegogo.com. To learn more about the Toronto chapter of No One Is Illegal, go to toronto.nooneisillegal.org. 
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.